Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm pleased today to be joined by Dr. Eric Westman. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you. For those who don't know who Eric Westman is, briefly, um, Associate Professor Medicine, Duke University, but you have an extensive history relative to the low-carb ketogenic nutrition space. Um, and also, I understand that you passed through University of Kentucky at one point? Yes, I did my internal medicine residency in Lexington from 1986 to 1990. Yes. Wow. So I, I was leaving when you arrived. Maybe that's a coincidence. I don't... So. <laughs> But you, um, so you've started the keto medicine clinic with uh, Dr. Yancey. That was in 2006, so 14 years ago. But that was after eight years of exploring and, and doing some research in the topic. You're past president, master fellow of Obesity Medicine Association. You're fellow of the Obesity Society. I think I met you in person the first time in Seattle at a joint meeting of the uh, American uh, Society of Bariatric Physicians and it, the Nutrition Metabolism Society. Yeah. And that was just a glorious four days of stalking people that I'd been reading all this time. And I'm still stalking you. Thank you for responding. Um, but how did you get into med? What was it that got you into medicine personally? Oh, well, in, let's see, I was the son of a doctor. And so I remember sort of uh, thinking, you know, I'm the last chance because my brother, I had two brothers. If two brothers didn't go into medicine, I was the last chance for my father to have a doctor in the family. Of course, that's not really great motivation. It was really curiosity. You know, I'm the, the, the child who would be, you know, feeling the back of my leg. And, you know, now I know it's a tendon. And I'd say, what is that? What the heck is that? And so it was really just out of wanting to understand the human body. And, and then, you know, it sounds corny, but I also have a pretty big altruistic streak where, you know, I wanted to help people out, fix problems. Uh, you know, that's played out into a kind of a, do-it-yourself sort of life where I'll try to fix things on my own. And, and, and that went over into the medical realm as well. So, you know, have, kind of having a familiarity of doctor in the family, kind of knew what it meant and um, wanting to help people and you know, being fortunate enough to go to Stanford University for undergrad. Uh, I was able to do pre-med, but also history as a major. 
so I could be more well-rounded than the average bio major, I suppose, biology major. Um, and then went back to the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I grew up. So I was at an ag, you know, a, a land grant school and uh, then um, went to the University of Kentucky for residency. That's where it kind of crystallized that I was learning how to be an internal medicine doctor fixing chronic condition. Well, managing chronic conditions. I, I wasn't fixing them. So I, I was a little frustrated. They finally you know, urged me to go on for more training down at Duke. So I kept working my way south and I've been at Duke ever since. So for 30 years, I've worked as a researcher and clinical physician using that research at a university private practice. So it's all insurance pay, Medicare, a little bit Medicare, Medicaid, well, a lot of Medicare, a little bit Medicaid. And so I've learned how to use what we've studied uh, in a clinical practice. But how, how I got into this research is kind of funny because I was a, a doctor in a clinic and a patient came to me losing 50 pounds. And you know, this was like a lightning bolt striking, you know, it was like it just didn't happen. You know, and now I'm taking you back to 1998 or so when all of the dietitians were using low-fat diets. And and at our hospital, we had a great dietitian group. We'd refer our patients to them and they'd come back heavier than before for weight loss. So they didn't have a method that really worked. So to have someone do something that worked was really remarkable. And, and it wasn't just once, it was twice, kind of in the same time, you know, maybe the same few weeks. I started scratching my head and I got curious again and, and said, you know, what have you done? What did you do? And one of the fellows He's a, a veteran, you know, then probably World War II vet at the time. And he kind of looked at me and said, all I've been doing is eating steak and eggs. And, you know, you probably just saw the shock in my face. You know, this young doctor doing everything that, that we've been told and will tell people not to do. And yet he lost all this weight. And, and then he it went further. I said, well, you know, I don't believe you. He said, well, it's, it's all in this book. It's, and it was a book written before you were born. And I'm like, oh, come on, that's, that's, I'm not that young, you know, but it turns out that the Atkins book was written about 1970. And well, I was born in 1960, so it was close, but not, you know, but anyway, he, he was trying to shame me and, you know, embarrass me that it, you know, I didn't know something, which is nice to do in a, in a way professionally with people, you know, and, and, um, <laughs> I also wasn't so overtrained to kind of ignore what was happening in front of me, which is what we're trained to do is just kind of dismiss things out of hand if we don't know about them, you know, can't be true and all this. So it turns out the guy was doing the Atkins diet, the two people in a row. And then I read the book and, and I was kind of thinking, yeah, this can't be good. You know, you're eating steak and eggs and, and meat and your cholesterol will go up. And, and so the next fellow comes through losing all this weight and he says he's doing the Atkins diet. I said, I don't want you to do it. I read the book and your cholesterol is going to go up. And he looked at me and kind of said, how do you know? And I said, well, because you're eating more fat. And he said, well, why don't you check it? And I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm working at the VA Veterans Hospital and it doesn't cost anything to check the blood as the lab's down the hall. So I order the blood test for the cholesterol, the lipids, you know, the things that everyone worries about today. And lo and behold, it was improved. Everything got better in the cholesterol. And, uh, and so I'm scratching my head left with, you know, what, do, what have I been taught 
I see these people getting results. And um, so as a young researcher in training, learning how to do clinical trials, writing grants, things like that, I thought, how can I urgently learn about this and then also study it? So I read some books, I saw it out doctors who were in clinical practice, which included Dr. Atkins. And Dr. Atkins was still in practice in New York City. He had been practicing there for 30 years. So I wrote him a letter, he called on the phone, and you know, it was kind of like this, you know, what do you want? And I, I said, well, I did your diet, it, it, it works. And he kind of laughed, I go, yeah. yeah, you know, and I'm like, well, there's no science about it. It's all, it's all he said, it's all in my book. And I read, I said, with all due respect, I, I read your book and it's just a bunch of anecdotes. You know, how many, how many stories can you put in a book, right? And, you know, there might have been 10 anecdotes and we don't count that as research and clinical trials. And so I said, you know, you need to do research. And he said, why would I want to do research? I know what the results will be. I've been doing this 30 years. So by this time, you know, a phone call, I'm thinking, well, this is kind of a stalemate. I mean, if he doesn't want to do research, and then finally he said, why don't you come visit my office in New York City? And I'll show you what I do. Oh my gosh, that was it. It was the the allowing, inviting. Now he didn't pay. I, I rustled up money in an account to go pay me and another uh, two other research employees who, if we pitched, we pitched him a study, we presented a study for him to fund. And if we were going to do the study, these would be the people I used. And so we went up for a day and, and I had a one page proposal for a study. There, uh, 50 people over six months on the Atkins diet, and we would publish it in a journal, follow all the blood tests. And he said, okay, pulled out a checkbook from his pocket, his you know vest pocket and jacket and, and writes the check. And so I go home with a research project and with, with a, a grant basically. Anyway, so you know, it was curiosity. Of course, now there, there are hundreds of, well, I would say dozens hundreds of people, I mean, thousands of people in the studies, uh, but the idea that um, uh, is really that we formalized the, the idea, the research, I didn't come up with it. So I don't ever say that I came up with this. In fact, Dr. Atkins was clear that he watched a, um, a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which cited William Banting back to 1860. And so there's a long history of using low carb diets, even the medical mainstream, Elliot P. Joslin and Frederick Allen, who, who, you know, and William Osler, the father of internal medicine, all of these doctors used low carb diets and that was forgotten. And then we were one of two research groups that started really assembling the data in a way that could be convincing whether it was harmful or not, because everyone knew it was harmful. I mean, do you remember back 20 years, people, people were afraid coming into the study that they would die the next day eating fat. I mean, it, eating it was fat, eating it cholesterol. Was yeah. The, the, also, the, the, I've told that story in various ways, even it got into the, uh, the um, obituary for Dr. Atkins in one of the journals. You know, and, and in there I'm quoted as saying, we're doing research on it, but it, I'm not saying that it's good yet. You know, so at the time you're seeing the change in, in my way of talking about it as the evidence was rolling in, kind of like early precincts in an election. Yeah. You don't want to call until you're really certain that it's that, that is done.
Yeah. And, and which is kind of ironic. I mean, it's the appropriate approach, but it's overcoming something that didn't happen that way. In other words, we, we adopted an idea that low fat was heart healthy and you can't get fat if you don't eat fat and that cholesterol in your diet would lead to increased cholesterol in your blood. All those things were essentially adopted without that kind of a cautious evaluation and then accepting based on the results. Yeah, so the, the science, um, the ability of science to then translate into recommendations and, and organizations getting on board in the 1970s was pretty weak, pretty minimal. You know, you didn't need randomized trial evidence to say evidence-based medicine really wasn't a thing. I remember going to one of the first workshops on evidence-based medicine as I was at, and in Lexington. So it was 1990, I went to to Hamilton, Ontario, where there was the birthplace of evidence-based medicine. And so for nutrition and nutrition, quote, science, it really was weak science based on epidemiology and, and apparently a colorful, uh, you know, kind of bully in the research world, Ansel Keys, and then the, the organizations that did epidemiology studies that we call that armchair research, where you, you can you sit back in your office and you just press computer buttons. You're not, you're not in the trenches in, you know, with patients seeing things, you know, so it's like the, you can get a view of the world from, you know, up here, the 30,000 foot view, but that that's where the whole idea that fat was bad, uh, that you shouldn't eat fat and that low, low carb was bad. Uh, and um, now that we're really in the trenches, it was always this way. So it was as if, People just kind of forgot what was true and made common sense, but then enter in all of the companies that started making products, and we had an explosion of a processed food industry, you know, in our lifetimes. Man, mm -hmm. it, that is a you know, this whole story is in several books that were very helpful for me. Gary Taubes wrote a book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and Nina Teicholz wrote the book, um, The Big Fat Surprise. And it really tells the story of this uh, Gordian knot of weak science and corporations and then medical organizations. And, and then lo and behold, there's an American Heart Association that says don't eat fat because fat causes heart disease. And still to this day, they say that because they're believers in that old epidemiology evidence. That So there are other organizations, thankfully, that don't say that, but they don't have the name, the American Heart Association. Doesn't that seem like they would be telling you the truth about what causes heart disease? And, and it's, now it's just basically a big business of corporate interests, you know, put, funding them and, and putting on conferences that really the, the science isn't there to support that organization saying what it's saying. And um, it, anyway, it, um, that's the whole kind of confusion that's occurred from the science not being solid at first. You can get I, all sorts of distortion. I, I make a point of saying to people that the you know American Heart Association is not a patient advocacy group. No, right. It's a special interest trade organization. There's nothing wrong with them unless you right. get them confused. Um, and Which it's also- time, I'm afraid. 
Yeah. And it's fair to point out that when the heart check logo goes on a package, the manufacturer pays the American Heart Association for putting that logo. Yeah. So there's there's lots of interests here that don't frequently get recognized. Now, you mentioned Dr. Atkins. You also correctly mentioned he wasn't the first person to use right. carbohydrate-restricted diets, call them whatever you wish. I've, I've been trying to train myself to call them therapeutic carbohydrate reduction um, to try to keep people's heads from exploding when they hear various buzzwords. Right. Um, right. But Atkins, keto, LCHF, low-carb, high-fat, these are all something of the same thing. It, it's, it's about reducing the amount of now, is it total or is it digestible carbohydrate in the diet? Which yeah. do you Correct. It's both. Either okay. or. The, the more, um, more accurate description of carbohydrate is using total carbs, not net carbs or subtracting out fibers. And because some people do digest non-digestible fiber. There, so there's a mistake in the name of insoluble fiber or non-digestible because actually some of it does get digested. So in a clinic like mine, I, I can't take that gamble or take that risk that someone having that fiber might uh, not respond correctly. I, I need what I do to work. I mean, I'm dealing with diabetes. I'm dealing with people on medications and I need the certainty that what I do will have the result I want. So that's why I use total carbs. And it's not that net carbs doesn't work where you where you subtract out the fiber and sugar alcohols, it can work. Thus, some of the confusion. I just see it as a less powerful, kind of like over-the-counter medicines. Over-the-counter medicines work. I don't prescribe them because I prescribe prescription medicine. I'm, I'm a physician. So uh, a lot of confusion there. Again, it, I like that it's like variations on the theme. You know, it's all rock and roll music, or it's all music. It's just rock and roll, and or classical, or you know, the uh, lowering the carbohydrates lowers the blood glucose and the glucose response to a meal, or uh, the blood glucose doesn't go up so much after a meal, and that means the insulin level doesn't go up as much. And to the extent that these are therapeutic, like you're saying, for they are for, for high blood pressure, it's therapeutic for, for diabetes, pre-diabetes, uh, for obesity. And of course it's known most as a treatment for obesity because it's so effective. I mean, you, in fact, I see today, you can do it wrong and it still works, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> you can do it, you can just lower the carbs for them before. If you're young, you're healthy, you're active, it works. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I remember as I was traveling um, around to, um, learn from the established nutritionists, the ones who trained in Europe kind of saw this as, well, of course it's true. It was the ones in the US that were skeptical and didn't believe in all that. I remember one uh, dietitian saying, well, of course, if you want to lose weight, you just stop, stop eating the bread for a few months. You know, and, but these were people who didn't have a whole lot of weight to lose and, and had grown up in a non-US food environment. And what we have here is just so distorted, even compared to other Western countries. Um, there's a, a therapeutic uh, surgical treatment for obesity called a lap band, 
that just puts a band around the stomach so you can't eat as much. It works great in Australia. It, it, it was used for years there, publications look great. And then it was brought into the US and it didn't work. And people were scratching their heads. Why the surgery worked, the publications are there. The food environment is entirely different. And, and also we have the, this idea of sugar being fine. And, and if I just drink sugar, I'll be great. There's, there's no fat in it. And we've created a lot of sugar junkies. Sugar addiction is, is real. Uh, and uh, you can drink sugar and this surgery won't work. And so that's why you're not seeing this surgical lap band being used much anymore because when it was brought into the US, it just didn't work like it did in another country. And it, it's also fair to point out that this um, insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia is now global. And that uh, what once was, I would suggest erroneously called a plague of prosperity is in fact now, I think the figures that I was looking at is that 80% of the people with it now live in low and middle income countries. And so again, it's, it's, it's a global phenomenon. It's, it's widespread. You've made the comment before, I think when you spoke at the AFGC conference, uh, last year, 2020, um, BC before COVID, um, right. that, that if, if keto, just to use a name were, was a drug that there would be more than enough research evidence to support its release as a drug. Is that, am I remembering that properly? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I say that because I used to be in that world of helping develop medications. It wasn't for diabetes or weight, it was for smoking cessation. Actually, my first 10 years of my research career, I helped design and carry out interventions to help people quit smoking. Another very addictive sort of substance. Uh, my group at Duke uh, was led by the inventor of the nicotine patch. And he actually led to the new treatments like Chantix and other things that you've heard about, nicotine patches and gums, and they're in nicotine inhalers and nicotine enemas and all these things. So, um, so, so I learned how to do clinical research and, and there's a process that you do to submit to FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States for the ability to market your drug. So actually, you know, have you noticed you can go to a vitamin store and pick up these vitamins and it says, you know, these have not been evaluated by the FDA. So actually, the, you can be selling these things that could be very toxic or potent, actually. But the, the notion for control in the U.S. Uh, the, is for the marketing of it. So you have to prove to the U.S. government beyond a certain threshold that the studies you've done show that what you're trying to market and sell uh, is safe and effective. And now they don't ever say, here's the number of people you need, here's the exact number, because it depends on the condition. And as we've seen through this last year, the, the process for a vaccine trial or other therapies for COVID-19 have been, um, uh, it's just trying to accelerate that process uh, but what you want is thousands of people in general, you know, for, for something like obesity, 
uh, you want thousands of people on the drug or on the diet, you know, in studies where you followed up most people so you know they haven't died and, you know, well, in fact, you know they're, they're better. And then you formalize it into not, only, not always research papers, but at least research, um, uh, you know, you might go into the FDA with reams, you know, like wheelbarrows of data of all these people to show that you followed these people and they did fine. So with that criteria in mind for drugs, I thought, well, you know, there's enough now on the keto diet that would be like a drug being approved at FDA. Just to kind of, in a nutshell, we're not talking about something that, you know, someone's just hawking or selling on TV and it's never been studied. This has been studied all around the world in, in many different types of, of ethnicities and, and uh, genetic backgrounds. Um, and I, I thought that might be a way to say it that would, oh, you know, I guess it is studied, you know. Um, so um, there, there are. Um, that's kind of the uh, reason where that where that came from. I was trying to make it. Now the the battle or the the task is there's so much evidence now, so many papers. Where do I begin? Where I mean, if you say you know, send me the best paper, I, I said, well, on what? You know, we have papers and meta analyses, meaning papers of papers, summaries of papers. And now there are five meta-analyses, meaning five summaries of papers and papers on low-carb diets for obesity. So, you know, which one do I send? Um, and, and now for diabetes, uh, it's not quite as many people, but it's close. Uh, and also we have an excellent study using ketosis, meaning they check their blood ketone meter, uh, levels with a meter during the study, showing that you can reverse type 2 diabetes this was the Virta Health study. Uh, and um, I'd have to say the number of studies aren't quite enough for diabetes. But again, we, like you said, we're, we're trying to prove something that used to be used all the time. It's ironic. It's, it's actually sad that we have a, it's a, um, such a double standard. But I guess it's human you know, process that if, you, if you're in the power position, you always assume other people have to prove that they're their whatever they're using works right mm. well we, we know low fat diets so you need to prove low carb diets okay well then there that's we've done that over the last 20 years when in fact you go back 100 years and it was low carb diets that were you know prominent and being used and the low fat diet got sort of grandfathered in without any data at all yes. <laughs> but it, it's like you can't you don't have the time to explain that people want you to go from the ground up proving today again what was known a hundred years ago it, it it's interesting because i've i've accessed the usda uh reports and other similar sort of scientific reports that were issued in that 1970s kind of time frame and they were trying to reply to the emerging, you know, um, wisdom, if you will put air quotes around that word. Um, and they were responding as scientists saying, the data is not conclusive. 
We, you know, we have evidence on both sides, you know, weak associational evidence, things like that. The way they were trained to respond, only the game rules had shifted. <laughs> and so they were up against people that for a number of reasons had no compulsion about making claims beyond the data and very confident. I think, was it Hegstead that mm -hmm. when the second edition of the Dietary Goals was released, made the comment about we can imagine no consequences and only benefits from accepting our recommendations. And yet they had had people trying to tell them, no, we, we, we think there may be evidence of harm and didn't matter. We don't see it. Uh, nothing wrong here. <laughs> yeah, the, those um, videos of the sessions uh, the government held, these hearings are available. You can track back and watch these. They're, they're really pretty chilling to hear both sides. You know, the scientists were saying this could be the biggest experiment and human and created disaster that we've never seen before because we don't know what we're doing when we're telling people not to eat fat and eat as much carbs as they want. And then uh, George McGovern from a, a wheat producing state basically said, well, I went down to Pritikin and it's a low fat place and I did well, so it must be good for everyone. It's like, wait a second, that's not great logic. And then, and then uh, he has said some statement like, you know, we just don't have the luxury to wait for to figure this out we have to act now and well not if you're going to act and do something bad and wrong so um i have to think the that it was the um governmental influence being um you know I, I, uh, supporting the food that america makes that's a big part of how things kind of got messed up i think uh it's not like they started promoting um uh palm oil because we don't make palm oil you know we don't have a tropical area in the u.s so um they uh, you know it was through the movie uh, there's a comedian uh, a stand-up comic turned computer guy tom naughton who put together a wonderful movie uh, called fathead the movie and it has clips from the, those times and describes things and he was really helpful for me to kind of wrap my uh, head around all of the kind of bizarre things that happened it's something that only now I, something that a comedian can only see. You know, sometimes they see, they just say it like it is and then it's funny. Right. And we have all He's these- naked. <laughs> He's not wearing any clothes. Yeah, so, so anyway, if, if, you're, if you're struggling with how could this be, I, I, the, uh, the books are, you know, Gary Taub's, Nina Teicholz, but that movie, Fathead, the movie, it, it was helpful for me just because, you know, I, I, I'm a means. I'm a herd guy. I'm a herd mentality doctor. And how could we be so wrong? And and um, uh, anyway, yeah. Well, now I, well, now I know why. But it, during that process, it wasn't easy. One of the things I found very interesting about Tom's documentary was it took him so long to make it. It's not a. It's not a criticism. It took him a while to make it, and I think he would has admitted that over the course of that experience, he learned from the people that he was interviewing and his view shifted. And, and so I, I think he started with one goal and he, he accomplished that goal by my interpretation, but then he also learned 
more as he went along and, and spoke to various people. And so that was interesting to watch that process. And you've described yours. I've described mine in other places. Um, I, you mentioned the food that we produce. Funny that that doesn't extend to beef, right? Somehow, yeah. right? And, and McGovern, there's a fair amount of beef produced in his home state, he wasn't all that big on, on the cattlemen um, for a number of reasons. And so the politics absolutely got into it. There was a social movement era. You know, there was a lot of things swirling around at that time. Um, and, and it all came together. And yeah, his comment about we don't have the luxury of a research scientist waiting until we have all the information. We have to act. You know, well, no, sorry, let me translate that for you. We have to be seen to be acting. We have to be seen to be doing things because we're politicians. We, we can't, <laughs> so, um, which is, gets us to the difference between policy and science. But um, the, it's been, there are various statistics about the health, the metabolic health, and we probably ought to define that. Um, but weight is a poor metric of health. It doesn't automatically mean you're not metabolically healthy. Um, and then there are these estimates of what the population looks like in terms of metabolic health. So if you could talk first about um, maybe the statistics and then maybe how would I know whether I am or not, um, that would be great. Sure. Well, so as a physician myself, dealing with um, trying to assess the health of an individual, uh, the things we go through are, are things you would imagine. We get, go through some genetic factors, family history being a source of that information. Uh, if you've had diseases in the family, we might heighten our awareness of it, uh, diabetes or heart disease. Um, and then we do certain questions about how you're, you're feeling, how you live. You know, we do measurements like the weight. The weight is an indicator, uh, but not perfect, as you're saying, of bad metabolic health. Um, how someone feels can be important in helping me determine if something's wrong. I mean, you ought to feel well, and, and uh, generally speaking. Um, and then the blood tests are something we use that um, I've learned that um, there's been an inappropriate focus on the cholesterol in the blood uh, or the type of cholesterol. And, and I wish, I, so when I'm talking to someone, I focus more on the glucose, the, the blood sugar and the insulin side of things. And that then goes along with the triglyceride and HDL which is also known as the metabolic syndrome. But I was taught that those weren't so as important as the total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol. So I do use the blood test to help out. Um, and um, then manipulating the diet, for me, I found that to be a very effective and, and easy to teach solution using a diet that's simple, like a low carb or keto diet. Most other doctors though will still resort to using medications to treat things. And I'm, I'm not a big medication guy anymore. I, I was taught to use all those, but I don't need medicines if I use an effective lifestyle to prevent 
and treat metabolic illness. So, you know, if you're thinking, do I have a disease? Well, if you're metabolically ill, you know, how um, you feel, whether if you've gained weight, it does correlate with the presence of metabolic problems, but it's not a perfect one-to-one -one correlation. But um, um, if the waistline, is, you know, it's grown through the years and you're way over your high school weight, you know, chances are, there's something we can help you with, uh, whether you're gonna be called diabetes, have diabetes or not. That's the other complication that will occur if you don't have a good lifestyle and you gain weight over time. And then uh, if you don't know, I mean, the statistics are, are pretty alarming. It's something like two thirds of Americans have either prediabetes, diabetes, overweight or obesity. So basically, they would be they would qualify to come to my specialty clinic to be treated, which you know uh, is uh, alarming. Um, and but just look around in in the shopping malls that are uh, you know the it's evident that the weight of Americans has gone up in some areas more than others. Uh, you know worldwide there are more people who in poverty who are overweight or obese than there are who are thin. And underweight, and so the malnourishment or malnutrition globally is more now obesity, not not having enough food. It's too much food, too much of the wrong food, which is just again another totally ironic situation where you know if if you could distribute things correctly, there's plenty of food. Yes. You know, it's just that it's the wrong places, the wrong kind of foods. Um, and um, but so for an, a given individual, I, I think you can know by um, by, you know, going through some checklists um, and then going to a doctor and asking for blood tests to be done. But you might not want to fall into the old paradigm, the old way of thinking about some of the blood measurements that there's a new way of looking at them that I find more helpful and more uh, valuable, especially when you're using something like a high fat uh, keto diet, because even sometimes the blood tests don't look good, but they are good. And that gets to a whole nother discussion of, of uh, you know, but my cholesterol went up and, and I say, good, you need it. And then, <laughs> well, you know, so a, a computer fellow came to the office recently and, and I explained this. He said, oh, it's like a syntax error. When he writes a program, it spits out because the, the language was wrong. That, and so that's what happens with doctors today. They look, oh, your cholesterol went up, must be bad. And it's just, a, it's, we're not using the same language. It, we're um, helping things out in a different way. We're, we're teaching people to drive on the left-hand side of the road, not the right-hand side when they've never done it. it it's, at first, it, it's not easy. It, in fact, you can feel unsafe. Unsafe on the wrong side, well, left-hand side of the road. Like, you know, if you're taught to eat fat now on a diet like this and you've never eaten fat, it, it can feel unsafe. I mean, not, not like physically, but mentally. So we deal with that a lot. It, it, it can be quite jarring. Um, so you are author of, best-selling author of more than just an obese, uh, 
shouldn't say just, than more than an obesity textbook. So this is obviously a source of information that people need to know about. So could you tell us what's most currently released and maybe some other sources? Yeah, so at an organizational level, I helped the Obesity Medicine Association to bring together their kind of um, uh, wisdom of what they teach at the organization into a textbook. And now that's the most widely used textbook to study for the obesity medicine exam. So, uh, but these books don't sell a whole lot and they're, you know, it's not for the general use, it's for the doctor trying to learn the detail of how to treat someone. Uh, but then several years ago, I, I was under the impression, well, I don't want to write a diet book, then I'll lose all credibility and no one will believe me. You know, my friend down the hall, you know, you're a diet book author. Well, you know, when, when Walter Willett at Harvard, who's well-respected and all that, wrote a diet book, I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So I got involved in the new Atkins for a new you. I'm author with Jeff Volick and Steve Finney, and it's another version, modern Atkins diet. Um, and then I got involved with Jimmy Moore, who is a prolific grassroots uh, keto low-carb guy. And we wrote Keto Clarity and Cholesterol Clarity. And then now I'm trying to assemble the information I've learned from other people about diet with the information that I've helped to assemble the keto world into a book that just came out this last month, uh, last quarter, if you will, um, called End Your Carb Confusion. So now there's so much confusion about carbs <laughs> that I want to help clarify. And you know, you may be surprised, Peter, I don't tell everyone to do keto. So we have people do a checklist. In fact, you don't need a blood test. We put it into language that you can understand and just do a checklist. And then we think you'll be in one of three different categories of a diet. Of course, they turn out to be all on the lower carb side than, than before. I think, I think that's you know, universally appreciated now that when you look out in pop culture, it's the, the no sugar drinks or the zero sugar or the only one sugar that's changed over the last few years. Have you noticed? Um, <laughs> because uh, that's helping people with their health. Um, and uh, so end your carb confusion, I hope will be really helpful to assemble the information that we know now in a way that's readable. So I, I met Amy Berger at a meeting and realized she was looking for some writing to do. She's a professional writer known for her book called The Alzheimer's Antidote, which is kind of a low carb view of how Alzheimer's happens. Um, and so we thought that, yeah, there's a lot of confusion. We wanna write a simple book that's readable and understandable. And so far, it's uh, the feedback I've gotten is really good, that it, it's hitting the mark in terms of not being preachy. We don't say that any food is evil or bad, or there's no hyperbole and, you know, like, you know, the, the lies and all that. No, we don't. It, it's all, here's food, here's what it does to your body, and here's some guidelines that we think will be helpful for you to be healthy uh, now and, and in the long run. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I hope end your carb confusion becomes um, uh, widely read. Uh, as do I. Uh, one of the things, and you, you, you mentioned um, the Alzheimer's, um, I think it's really important for people to at least hear that 
there's a wide range of the so-called non-communicable diseases, the chronic diseases that in fact appear to be metabolic in or of nature and therefore at least some aspect of diet has to play a part in them and that i think the quote that i've i've heard is that um this hyperinsulinemia insulin resistance it at least doesn't make any of them better if not having some causal relationship, the degree of the data or the quality of the data varies depending on what we're looking at. Uh, type 2 diabetes seems very clear. Um, obesity seems very clear. But then even heart disease and, as you mentioned, Alzheimer's, and there seems to be some things with cancer. There seems to be some things with um, uh, mental illness as well. And again, varying qualities of evidence. But uh, one of the line, one of the ideas from reviewing Gary Taubes' latest book is not drinking your calories isn't going to hurt anybody as a place to start, <laughs> right? Yes. And, yeah. and so, and, um, oh, go ahead. And, and so diabetes, this whole, th uh, another way to look at diabetes might be to think of it as carbohydrate intolerance, right? Yes. That's right. So that it doesn't, and it doesn't apply to everyone, but if you do have prediabetes and diabetes, you can reverse it by taking away the, in, the carbohydrate that you're intolerant to, which leads to that kind of, well, duh. I mean, if you have lactose intolerance, you know, it gives you stomach ache and all that. Well, you don't have lactose and it goes away, right? So the problem is that carbohydrates don't necessarily make you feel bad immediately like lactose in fact the opposite is true and they usually make you feel good and make you want to have more of the donuts and cakes and candy pies and ice cream so, so yeah I've, I've often thought if if carbs smelled as bad as cigarettes did this would be a lot easier because we don't yes. want people smoking around us as it smells so bad the problem is carbs smell so darn good mm -hmm. one, one of the problems Another uh, a key thought I think came to my mind, and that is that anyone who's listening to us who is currently on diabetes, diabetic or blood pressure medication should, without exception, not adopt this diet without medical supervision, specifically the medication adjustment. Right. Yeah, because the medicine can become too strong very fast. And I've even had people need to have their medicine monitored so carefully that we adjusted on the first day that they changed the diet. So you have to be very careful to understand how this affects the, the medicines. And uh, yeah, the best advice is just don't do this on your own without the help of a doctor who understands this. Now, the problem is a lot of doctors don't understand this. So they'll, they'll say, oh yeah, go ahead and do it when, when, so you wanna make sure there's someone who is, we call them keto friendly doctors or uh, a doctor who's gone through the Obesity Medicine Association training. So they understand that yes, on the first day, you might have to stop all of your insulin. You know, even if you've been on it 20 years, 
which is again, just kind of phenomenal. I mean, this whole time the insulin was treating the food in these people, <laughs> you know? So, you know, there's this false, oh yeah, don't, I, I've been on it for 20 years. No, it, you can have it, you have to have it changed on that first day. This can be so uh, influential, so therapeutic. Yeah, I. But then uh, you might think that it made you sick, the diet. No, it was mm, the medicine. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, another of the quotes from Gary's latest book was from Blake Donaldson, and I have already put it up on uh, as a graphic. But I think it goes something like, if you're if you're taking insulin so that you can, you're out of your mind if you're taking insulin so you can eat Danish pastry. Yeah, that's a good quote. Um, and and that's, how it, that's how it got, um, how it, got uh, how it spread. It was the idea that if you have diabetes, you should be able to eat like, quote, normal people. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know? so I, I haven't found it. Yeah, I, I, I saw it. It went by years ago, and I haven't been able to find it since. But it was basically an advertisement telling parents that there's no need for their kids to be denied the joy of Halloween, just up their insulin. Right. And well, and you know, that would be fine. That would be fine if it didn't have bad consequences, but it does have bad consequences. <laughs> so if you, it, that, um, uh, the, the, the management of diabetes with insulin and high carb diets has not created a situation where you live a normal lifespan without any health problems. There are complications that happen even in the best medication, medical treatment of diabetes. And that's something that I, I as I got into this and, and I spent a whole lot of time this year making a master class with videos and I, I planned them through and, and what it just leaped out to me was the current medical model doesn't explain that when we give you insulin, we don't mean that we're gonna be fixing you in the long run. In fact, we're just kind of managing, the language is very interesting, we're managing it. And then, well, what, well, what will happen? Well, the blood sugars will be under you know, 7%, which is the A1C, which is not normal by any means. And, and so the medical world and, and my, my colleagues have accepted the fact that if you, once you get diabetes and we put you on insulin, you're always gonna have diabetes and that you're gonna be at risk for these complications. And they never mention that just changing the food can reverse and fix it. And you don't even have to have diabetes. Yes. So, you know, we mentioned this at meetings and we've crossed paths with lots of people. We've met people who are basically irate about this. I mean, they, you know, they wanna have doctors be sued and have a class action lawsuit. I, you know, I don't know how to, how to do that, but it's it just, it seems bordering on unethical that you wouldn't allow people to at least know that this treatment I'm giving you doesn't fix this in the long run. You're, you're still at risk for all of these problems. But you know, if you went down this other path, treatment of changing the food, and I don't know much about it, but you might look into it, you don't even need diabetes. And you know, my hope, and, and uh, as I age and teach other doctors, and it's a lot of work sometimes to take people off insulin and. So I'm going to be shifting more toward the prevention of this, where you know we could be impacting the next generation as well, and that's where the word about sugar, be having to have limits and getting into the pediatric 
teaching and the schools and all that's really where the money is in terms of, of education so that we don't perpetuate what happened over our, over our lifetimes. But it's a long road because of all the forces in place. But the doctor should at least point out that there's another way to do it. And, and unfortunately, that mindset that you've explained extends into the realm of public pol and international policy and sustainable development conversations are based on this idea that, okay, we recognize that there's there is such a thing as too little animal source food in a human's diet. We, we can see problems in human development and, you know, women, pregnant women and their infants and children growing up. And now there's growing evidence of a problem with seniors like myself. Um, but they still believe that there's something real about the too much animal source food. Yeah, and, and and so that whole then you you have people who are making projections about the number of people who die every year due to a lack of fiber in their diet, and they die due to having too much red meat in their diet, and all of these yeah. myths, I'll call them that, um, then ripple out, and and now we're having conversations about well, how are we going to meet the needs of a growing population? How are we going to produce the food in a sustainable manner in a way that enhances or at least protects the environment in which it's done. How do we make animal source foods, which are always going to be more expensive because they're more resource intensive to produce, they're more valuable, they should be, um, but they tend to be perishable. So how do you transport them? How do you make, you know, get them into the marketplace and all of those questions. But until people get that idea, that it may well be that the answer to this global phenomenon is more animal source food in their diet, less processed carbohydrate, then they, they don't see it. Just like they don't see that rather than feeding people carbohydrates and then medicating it, maybe if you didn't feed them the carbohydrates, you wouldn't have to medicate it. It's just, it, it's at times frustrating, at times aggravating, but I also think it's hopeful because like you had your transformational moment seeing two patients and many other physicians. And again, that's part of Gary's or the, the, the main part of Gary's book is this transformation that took place um, in so many people's lives. There you go. Just, just, yeah, thank you. The case for keto. Um, a very happy owner of all three of <laughs> versions at this point. Um, so hopefully we can get more people. Um, one question that occurs to me, what has happened in your business slash industry with the new reality of less in-person visits, more remote sort of work? Has that changed how you can practice medicine now? Yeah, uh, well, um, the uh, move toward telemedicine, it's called, tele using the um, browser or, or video chats through a, a confidential sort of system has exploded this year. And um, a lot of the, even some of the confidentiality rules have been r relaxed a little bit um, so that 
in a practice like mine, it, most doctors can do a lot of the work by phone or, or by, by video. But if you're trying to treat someone for a weight problem and, and you, know, you need to measure their, their belly and put them on a scale. Um, I, so the way I've done that is I do that less often, uh, but I still either need someone measuring something at home or if they're not measuring that they come in periodically uh, to a clinic that is, you know, everyone's um, uh, taking precautions at a clinic. Um, and I, yeah, I think the whole medical world has become more um, by, but just by necessity, more telemedicine. Um, and um, I think in a good way, that's going to stay. Uh, a lot of people have learned the safe use. I mean, that's one of the things that how, it hasn't been, there wasn't time to really say, okay, if I don't see someone every month, here are the things that might be able to go wrong, right? We, we haven't been able to work that out. So you're, you work that out in real time. Um, and I think it's done pretty well. I haven't heard any, you know, problem areas, uh, although the lack of um, some people will stay at home and not access medical care unfortunately, when the medical care could help them. I, I hear some studies in that regard, but um, I'm uh, hoping that we'll be able to blend what we've learned with the new and the old and that payment will follow. Of course, so the government uh, decided to pay for these video visits, like an in-person visit. And if that changes, if they start changing that, then, you know, we won't we'd be able to really have a job remotely. So that that's all part of it. Um, but, uh, you know, it, can I switch back to a different line that we were thinking of that um, the, the, the optimism and the, the research and the, the paradigms. Um, I had a, a recent I have a student um, elective at Duke where students choose to learn about the medical management of, of obesity. They rotate through several clinics including the surgical clinics, and, and they get a really kind of a unique view of how you can take away medicines and, and improve all of these conditions. So recently, one of the students has a project where they actually give food to people in the clinic. And these are the underserved folks who are uh, even maybe poverty line or below. And the students are giving food you know, to hundreds of, of people locally. But you know the food they're giving? Fruits and vegetables, fruits and vegetables. It, it, what a noble thing, right? To give fruits and vegetables. Well, if it's a starchy vegetable and it's fruit, it makes your blood sugar go up and it makes the diabetes worse and it makes the obesity worse. So, so I had a chance with the student who's in charge, one of the students in charge of that program, he did our rotation, which is a keto clinic and he came up with a keto box where he's now delivering the keto foods to targeted patients with diabetes. And the idea is that they're going to just eat this food. So we provide it to them and they're all happy to get the food. But his mind, you know, the young 30-ish doctor, researcher, brilliant guy, couldn't go past the idea of, well, we can't, we can't give meat 
you know, to people. I mean, we, we how do we, you know, the, again, that idea that is, you know, vegetables and vegetarians, the way, you, so I introduced them to all the science and all this, and even found a regenerative agriculture group at Duke that I didn't know existed. And so when you come at this in terms of fundability, like he did in a project like this, I said, well, we could give them spam or, or give them, because spam has no carbs, or, or we could give them vouchers to go to McDonald's and they'd even want to do this even more. And he always said, no, we can't do that. He, he couldn't, couldn't uh, get his mind past the, whether it's the political correctness or, or the fundability, uh, 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 well, we couldn't get it funded if you said you were just giving spam. Uh, and uh, so I do remember some years ago going to the Cattleman's Beef group and NCBA and I said we could fix diabetes just feeding people beef. I, I was able to give that message to the board and of course they scoffed and you know <laughs> well they, they were eating fat and and all that and no I still hold to that today but uh, so now it's the source of funding that is kind of the a roadblock in this world and so well what people have done is they've done GoFundMe's to create their own evidence. As I, I watch uh, Sean, um, Sean Baker, one of the carnivore doctors, he did a GoFundMe and he's funding his own clinical trial using a carnivore type diet. So, so very little vegetable and plants in the diet. And, um, and then the cholesterol code, Dave Feldman does his own GoFundMe to collect evidence about people who have high cholesterol levels on a keto diet. Well because the medical mainstream would just tell you not to do it. And they would never, they wouldn't study it. I mean, it would be unethical to study something that raises the LDL when, when these are people trying to solve their own questions and they can't get money from the, the mainstream people. So it's become the philanthropists or even the, the GoFundMe philanthropists to help solve this, which again is, um, uh, discouraging and distressing, but opt optimistic. You know, once people start assembling their own information, the other powers that be hopefully will say, well, okay, because so, you've shown it in this way, we'll, we'll, it's, it's no risk to us to do it and we'll try to get other money to, to fund it. But I, it's just interesting how a very well-intentioned, bright, young medical research person couldn't See, you know, you're going to give, you're going to let them eat McDonald's. Mm -hmm. Are they going to be, no, we'll be fixing their diabetes. Now I haven't eaten them. I can't remember when I ate at McDonald's, but my patients do. Yeah. And, and one of my patients only ate at McDonald's or any fast food. It was fine. I don't need to make a brand. Only ate at McDonald's off the dollar menu. So he made it inexpensive and fixed his own diabetes and lost weight. And, and so I'm thinking, well, fast food could be part of the, the solution, but then they make money. The more people buy the food, and the more money that the food they produce, and so they're not going to be coming out saying, you know, here's how you eat less of our food. Well, yeah, I, I guess I guess at one point I had the thought that you know, given the numbers of of the percentage of the adult population in the United States that's not metabolically or not enjoying optimal metabolic health or is one of those categories. This is a huge market that they could tap into by figuring out the foods that they're already handling, they're already producing them, 
and just bundle them into, you know, the keto meal or call it whatever they want to so that one, we didn't have to buy the sandwich and throw the bread away. So we reduce food waste Two, it would well, make it easier for bad. the customer. Yeah. People feel bad about throwing away the bun. I'm like, no, just throw it away. I mean, so yeah. I even was in a group and I said, the, the squirrels will eat it. Well, there happened to be a veterinarian in the group. And she said, no, squirrels don't, they shouldn't eat that either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, people, the, there are online, um, resources for people to find, I think you said keto informed or keto friendly physicians. Um, and so dietdoctor.com is one place that I'd recommend. Are there any others that you off the top of your head? Well, that's a good one. Um, at, at my website, I link to several different websites. I, I got tired of updating my own list. So now I just link to the lists. So my website, uh, is, which is at the moment, it's like a, an advertisement. I apologize for that, but that's with the new class at Adapt Your Life Academy and then the new book. But drwestmanonline.com, D-R-W-E-S-T-M-A-N-O-N-L-I-N-E.com has a little tab called Keto Docs. And it links to several different websites that, that update it uh, more and more. Uh, so there are a growing number. And then even the case for keto, uh, Gary's book uh, kind of also has lists of doctors that um, you may find in your area. Perfect. Um, I've asked you a bunch of questions. You've been very... Um, uh, generous with your time and the information's been wonderful. It's only fair to offer you the opportunity to ask me any questions if you'd uh, like. Oh, my pleasure. You know, I was enthralled with this uh, movie, the indie movie, um, The Biggest Little Farm. Have you seen this? Mm -hmm. It's the, the story of a couple who, uh, one of them was a photographer, so he photographed the whole experience of taking this hard tack soil in a very fertile area, but it had been over, I guess, over um, cultivated. Cultivated, yeah. And they turned it into this beautiful uh, orchard with, and they, of course, they needed manure and they needed it. So they, it's a regenerative agriculture story um, that, that I really liked that. And uh, I, if, if you thought that it was a reasonable kind of thing, um, the other movie, uh, Sacred Cow, I thought mm -hmm. was a very nice. Uh, recent look at all of the information and um, uh, these are important ways to communicate that it's okay and in fact it's essential to have the uh, animals to have healthy soil which uh, uh, you know I so you would endorse those and I'm, I'm okay to endorse these to other people Sure. Uh, the, the well-made, I have minor quibbles with almost everything. My major professor said, Ballerstead, you'd argue if your ass was on fire. I said, <laughs> no, I would. I said, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> well, that aside, they, they got the big picture correct. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, um, there is no either or, right? It's not animals or plants. It's both. Animal agriculture is absolutely integrated and fundamental to all sustainable food systems globally. They're going to look very different. But like you said, if, if for anyone who is thinking they're avoiding animal agriculture and buying organic produce, 
the fertilizer that went on to that came from livestock. So sure. if we get rid of the livestock, where, and, and that's before we dig down into the essential nutrients that we can only get from animal source, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, you look globally, it's, it's like over half of the fertilizer used to grow the human edible crops is manure. Yeah. So get rid of that. What you're going to make more commercial fertilizer that comes at a cost, just like diabetes comes at a cost environmentally, environmental footprint of chronic disease is massive. Um, you know, the, 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 so these, these things are, there's lots of different ways to look at these. Um, the, the thing that I wouldn't want people to get in their mind is I can't do keto if I don't buy grass fed or if I don't buy organic. Um, and, and I also don't want people to get in their mind that if it doesn't have this label on it of some specific management form, that the producers aren't in fact pursuing the same goals as somebody who follows that management, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So uh, I had occasion to talk to you know a third generation cattlewoman, but she's not part of this regenerative agriculture community, but her husband graduated with a degree in soils and has been interested in soil health for many decades. And they've been practicing things on their ranch designed to improve their soil health. And so you wouldn't want people to think that the beef that comes from their place isn't because it doesn't have the label on it. Right. So it, it, and that may seem like a minor quibble, but uh, there are aspects of again, my agricultural community who are a little sensitive to the implications of, you know, I'm not doing it right because it's not certified by you, um, which is also a reality that's coming. And we're beginning to see just the beginning of a pushback against it. Uh, and interestingly enough, I'm seeing, or at least perceiving, um, a pushback against that regenerative agriculture from people who advocate against animal agriculture. Interesting. So, yeah. and it may be because that message of those goals and that management resonates so well with the public yeah. that, right. that they realize that they have to attack it because otherwise then that goes away. Well, but I, I just, echo, uh, I would echo your, uh, there's a, a false choice that's being put out there, which doesn't exist, you know, meat or veggie. And, and I think the end solution for human health will be both, or, or at least just not veggie, you know? Well, and, and also that idea of individuals exploring options with a clear mind, like you're not going to kill yourself, you're not going to kill the planet, but figure out how you react to various foods and, and, and what are the meaningful metrics of health for you to be tracking. It's not total cholesterol. It's not LDL cholesterol. It's not BMI. Well, unfortunately, that's the three that most people talk about with their doctors. So that's right. a problem. Um, but people should know that we're, we're, there's a lot of individuality in the human herd, and it's likely that we all respond differently 
to foods and we should have the freedom to explore and find what works best for us now and maybe it'll change in 10 years. I guess let me throw, throw an end uh, comment, just the A1C, the, so the blood sugar metabolism, that's what the A1C reflects, is more important than those cholesterol things. So if you want to know what your A1C is and not let it go up, that's kind of my last public service announcement. Perfect. <laughs> I also, uh, it comes to mind, I use a book um, in my teaching um, of patients, the book, The Vegetarian Myth. Mm -hmm. by Pierre Keith. Mm -hmm. is, that a, 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 is that a sound sort of approach to let people read? Yeah, there's a, like I said, um, if you're in a group that you agree with 100%, you're probably in a cult. And, and my role in wherever I show up is probably just to prove that it's not a cult, right? Because I, like I say, yeah. there are some issues that Lier and I might very well disagree on. But when she talks about Again, the role of the, the reality that humans can only obtain certain nutrients from animal source foods and the reality of, you know, if we're going to be growing plant source foods, then we're going to be at war with some animals that want to eat them in one way or another. Um, what I got, what I tremendously appreciated from her book um, one was the precious story about her war on the slugs. I just loved that one. Um, <laughs> but, and, and that also showed up in, in Diana Rogers, um, sacred cow. Um, but Lier talked about how it's natural for people to be concerned about their health. It's natural for people to be concerned about the environment to the degree that they understand what that is. That was my editorial comment on the end of that. Um, it's natural for people to be concerned about, you know, the well-being of workers and industries that supply. All of that is, but when you couple those natural interests and inclinations with bad information, you can make bad decisions. And, and unfortunately, there's been so, so much bad information promulgated from various sources across this space that people naturally reach these conclusions, but they're not, they're not right. People, you will harm yourself, you will harm the planet. And, and, and part of what I want people to appreciate more is this idea that when you improve your health, you are improving the world. And it, and it may be the most practical and impactful thing that any of us as individuals can do, right? I mean, it's, it's easy to believe the big stories, right? And the big projects. But if we could all, you know, imagine if however many millions of type 2 diabetics weren't type 2 diabetics anymore. What impact would that make in their lives, in the lives of their families, uh, their productivity as workers, uh, lessening the economic burdens? And again, the, the environmental burden of the pharmaceutical industry is much larger than the livestock industries. But we don't talk about that. I wonder why. Um, so um, all of those things put together, again, optimistic, 
I, I hope not unreasonably so. Mm-hmm. And and based on the information that you've made available over the last, what did you say? Almost 30 years. I mean, I hate to put too much on it. <laughs> yeah. um, that That's phenomenal. And how do we get how do we get that information better distributed for people to couple with their natural desires and inclinations to make better decisions for themselves and for their families? Well, I have to thank you for educating me through the years and and today. So I learn every time we speak. Thank you. You're more than welcome. It's always a pleasure getting to uh, learn from you. So thanks for joining us today. Be well. And I look forward to the next time that we can eat some barbecued ribs somewhere. Absolutely. (laughs) I I could live on brisket, I learned. Uh, There's a um, very nice uh, different ways to do it. But um, and and that's something new. I, you know, there are ethnic and cultural differences in in Wisconsin. At least years ago, we didn't have much brisket. But uh, it's really good. (laughs) Kielbasa, maybe, but not brisket. That's right. <laughs> All right. Thank well, you so much. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.